I would say now, after 20 years in Afghanistan, the war is finally over, and perhaps there is an opportunity, I hope there is an opportunity, to reset the relationship. Hello and welcome back to The Audit, a podcast dedicated to bringing listeners insights from both the United States and Pakistan. We invite experts and especially decision makers to weigh in on the most pressing developments to audit the Pakistan-U.S. bilateral relationship. I'm your host, Adam Weinstein, and the voice you just heard is Ambassador Ann Patterson, who served as ambassador to Pakistan from 2007 to 2010 at the height of the war on terror and a period of extreme violence across Pakistan. We are going to come back to her later, because one year since the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, today's episode will discuss the war on terror and how the lead-up to it inserted misunderstanding and even dysfunction into the relationship. Our guests today are going to bring a range of perspectives from either side of the U.S.-Pakistan relationship, and often go deep into their experiences and recollections of the historic events that occurred in their presence, and sometimes they diverge. The war on terror was singularly pivotal in shaping the way the United States and Pakistan approached each other and the region, and we are still seeing the ramifications of those decisions unfold today. I think Washington jumped into what they called war on terror without proper preparation and without proper understanding. Policymakers in Washington, they started a war against uh, a whole lot, like 1.8 billion uh, Muslims around the world. They did not know who should they follow. So there were preemptive strikes. They, they went into war with unilateral attacks without going to United Nations. And there were so many incidents where international law was violated and so many innocent people were killed. You just heard from Asif Lukman Kazi, who is the Director of Foreign Affairs for Pakistan's Jamati Islami Political Party, which is one of Pakistan's most significant Islamist movements. He also served for 10 years as Special Assistant to his father and Jamati Islami's late Amir and Member of Parliament Kazi Hussein Ahmad. I sat down with him to discuss the history of Jamaat-e-Islami serving as interlocutors with a group of Afghan militias collectively referred to as the Mujahideen, and in particular, Gubaldin Hekmetyar. To understand this segment, we're going to have to go over a brief background of U.S. support for the anti-Soviet jihad in Afghanistan during the 1980s and its partnership with Pakistan. This is an overview, not a dissertation, please remember that. So it's not going to satisfy someone with real knowledge. If you want more nuance, I recommend starting with Chapter 4 of Barnett Rubin's book, Afghanistan, What Everyone Needs to Know. But basically, in the early 1970s, Afghanistan's King Zahir Shah was losing support, especially in the country's urban centers. In 1973, the king's cousin and former prime minister, Muhammad Daoud, gained power through a coup while the king was out of the country. A man named Burhanuddin Rabbani founded a new political party called the Jamiat-e-Islami, not to be confused with Pakistan's Jamiat-e-Islami, and this was founded in 1972. But Daoud suppressed its activities, and so Rabbani fled to Pakistan. He wouldn't be the last. On April 27, 1978, the Afghan military joined forces with the Marxist-Leninist party known as the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, or the PDPA, and killed Dawood in a coup. This is sometimes referred to as the Sour Revolution. I'm going to skip over some really important details that we simply don't have the time to cover. Remember, entire books and dissertations have been written about this topic. 
But in December 1979, the Soviet Union sent thousands of troops into Kabul, killed the leader of this new movement, and installed Babrak Karmal as president. Back in Pakistan, there was a group of dissidents, including Rabani, who later became president of Afghanistan in 1992. But there was also an infamous warlord named Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who was Pakistan's choice for resisting the Soviet-backed government and who had close relations with Jamati Islami. In fact, he visited their headquarters in Lahore as recently as 2021. So there were many different stakeholders on the ground. We had the Afghan Mujahideen. We had the U.S. government and intelligence services. We had the Pakistani government and intelligence services. And we had Islamist parties inside Pakistan. And all of these groups shared the same goal of expelling the Soviet Union from Afghanistan. But the commonalities often didn't extend far beyond that. Actually, jamaat islami Pakistani government and U.S. government, they went to Afghanistan uh, in different times. But the war in Afghanistan did not start in 1979. It started very early. There were attacks on the Islamic parties in Kabul, and they came to jamaat islami to help them and to give them refuge in Pakistan. So we, since we had one culture, we were one people, we had the same civilization, we spoke the same language. So we were morally bound to give them uh, this moral support and uh, refuge. And later on, Jamaat Islami introduced them to Pakistani government. So before United States jumped into this war, uh, there were like seven, eight years of Jamaat Islami and Pakistani government already supporting it. Uh, the United States had its own uh, objectives and uh, Jamaat Islami did not work with the uh, United States directly in any shape. United States was collaborating with Pakistani government. Uh, Jamaat Islami was, as a political party, it was working independently. This was a period of clandestine but known cooperation between the United States and Pakistan in assisting the Afghan Mujahideen to fight the Soviet army. Sometimes the cooperation was more direct than other times. Ultimately, this led to the withdrawal of the Soviets, followed by a brutal Afghan civil war, and culminated with the Taliban's ascension to power. I think what went wrong was uh, when the Soviet Union went back from Afghanistan, they tried to put their own favorite people in Kabul, and uh, the popular figures were uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar was popular, Professor Burhanuddin Rabani was popular, but these two, they were ignored, and a weak government was installed under uh, Mujaddidi. This was because the United States was afraid that Gulbuddin Hekmatyar and Professor Rabani will not be completely in their hands, and they used the Pakistani government to install uh, a weak government. After the Soviet withdrawal, the U.S. abandoned. It did not remain a partner in rehabilitation, in reconstruction of Afghanistan, and putting in place uh, a stable and strong political system. And, and from there, everything then went wrong. That one decade uh, ultimately culminated and 9-11, until 9-11 happened. The 9-11 terrorist attacks shook the foundation of American society in a completely unprecedented way. One cannot overstate the fear and vulnerability that took over the country in the days following the attacks. Washington scrambled to respond. President Bush gave an ultimatum to President Musharraf after 9-11 that Pakistan could either stand with us or against us. 
Pakistan became viewed by Washington as a necessary but erratic and reluctant ally in the U.S. global war on terror. Pakistani officials often see it differently, though, arguing that this was a U.S. war which ended up costing Pakistan around $70 billion in economic losses, along with a worsened security environment and massive loss of life. As the country saw an onslaught of terrorist attacks from the Pakistani Taliban following it becoming a strategic ally to the United States in the war on terror, and alongside the U.S. drone campaign in Pakistan and Afghanistan, anti-American sentiment in Pakistan increased. But many in Washington claim that these economic losses were offset by all the support Pakistan received during this period, and the rise in terrorist activity was homegrown. Ambassador Ann Patterson, whose voice you heard at the beginning of this episode, served in Pakistan as the U.S. troop surge in Afghanistan was kicking off across the border, and an era of suicide blasts and extreme violence was fomenting in Pakistan's cities. She later served as Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs from 2013 to 2017. Well, it was actually very exciting. I got there, of course, and as you mentioned, in 2007. I got there literally, I think, two weeks before the Red Mosque incident, uh, which you could smell the cordite uh, from the embassy. And the focus of the U.S. government, of course, at that time was overwhelmingly on counterterrorism and on American uh, efforts in Afghanistan. And I had gotten the job uh, because Ryan Crocker, who was my predecessor, was urgently uh, moved to be ambassador to Iraq. So I was uh, put in the Pakistan job uh, rather suddenly uh, to fill in, but I found it an exciting and very challenging tour. Do you think there's a metaphor at play here where you know, the U.S. suddenly moves uh, an ambassador to Iraq at the height of the surge there when things are beginning to deteriorate and then looks away from Afghanistan and Pakistan for a couple of years. Is there a metaphor, metaphor there at all? One I probably wasn't entirely aware of at the time. I This past year, I've spent um, teaching a course in Afghanistan at Yale, and I was struck really with how Iraq sucked up resources and management time uh, from the effort in Afghanistan. Of course, that began to reverse in some respects during the surge uh, in troops in Afghanistan in 2009. And when I left uh, in 2010, we had something like 130,000 troops across the border. But yes, I do think there's always a trade-off. There was a trade-off that was more pronounced than most people think. So you were in Pakistan at a time when security was deteriorating. You mentioned the smell of cordite uh, during the the siege on Lal Masjid. And I was actually looking through uh, diplomatic interviews and a a U.S. commercial officer who worked under you at the embassy in 2008 described their first month in Islamabad this way. It was so darn dangerous. The first month I was there, I was the first car on the scene of the Marriott bombing. I was hauling bloodied embassy staff back to the clinic and it was a hair-raising situation. To go to work every day, you went through eight military checkpoints. So what effect did the Marriott bombing and other terrorist attacks have on U.S. diplomacy in Pakistan? Well, the Marriott bombing, I think, had a very dramatic effect on Pakistanis as well, particularly those who lived in the capital. And it was in September of 2008, and the American embassy had something like 45 people who were billeted there and three died in the attack. 
Uh, yes, it was dangerous. There were lots of terrorist attacks in downtown Islamabad. Uh, the diplomatic qu- quarter was pretty much cordoned off, but but probably not 100%. Uh, that's explaining all the uh, uh, roadblocks that people had to go through. The officer in question, whose uh, who's, um, oral history you cite, was an extremely brave person who went back and several times to rescue other people, uh, including from other embassies, uh, from the wreckage of the Marriott. It had an enormous effect, I think, on Pakistan's international perception, international reputation, because, because it, not that investment was exactly a runaway success beforehand, but it strongly discouraged investment. For many Pakistanis, the cost of the violence Ambassador Patterson describes extends far beyond an impact on international perception or a loss of investment. It's seen as an era of isolation, death, lost economic opportunities, and a thankless partnership with the United States. They view this period of urban bombings and fighting as a direct result of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. I only want your people to know that Pakistan lost more than 80,000 people in the war against terror. Every city in Pakistan became a haven for these terrorists to go and uh, kill whoever they... It wasn't the Americans' time. It wasn't our European friends' time. My friend, it was the Pakistani women, children, and civilians who were dying. It was our soldiers who were dying and were still dying firefighting the Taliban. We never created the Taliban. We never created the Mujahideen. We never used them. They are not our product. And it should not have been left alone to Pakistan to deal with them. It was the responsibility of the entire world to deal with them. Ambassador Nagmana Hashmi, who has served as ambassador of Pakistan to the People's Republic of China, European Union, and Ireland, is one of many Pakistanis who identifies a destructive pattern in how the United States has historically meddled and then disengaged. She sees the choices that the United States made in the 1990s as a perfect example of this. When the Russians moved out of Afghanistan, uh, it's on record, It's uh, whether it was at the UN or in our bilateral talks uh, with our European partners and with the US, we had said, don't leave in this kind of hurry. You are going to, you will have to face a lot of problems. We need to have a reconstruction package here so that the economy of Afghanistan can be stabilized so that our economy is linked to the economy of Afghanistan. So we can open up the Central Asian republics, we can open up India and all the region as a whole can develop. That never happened, we saw the Taliban. We told our friends in, uh, in the US, look, you have to negotiate with them, otherwise things will become more difficult. We were ignored and what happened? 9-11 happened. Even after 9-11, we had told our friends in our discussions that it is not going to be possible for the, the Americans to win this war. The Afghans have never allowed anybody to win a war on that territory. You, they were making a mistake and it has been proven that a mistake was made and eventually they had to negotiate with Taliban and enter into an agreement that nobody has any idea of what it is. Uh, so uh, now the Taliban's uh, are there and uh, uh, you know, nobody wants to recognize them because Americans don't want to recognize them. And now you are talking against them and uh, stopping their uh, legitimate money of their one people, $9 billion or whatever. And uh, while we don't know what is the agreement that brought uh, uh, the Taliban into power, 
uh, we were not part of it. Nobody knows. The details have not been shared. This notion that the United States has a tendency to repeat its mistakes is common in Pakistan. Not all Pakistani diplomats place the onus on Washington for the dysfunction that emerged during this period, however. Ambassador Hussein Haqqani, who served as Pakistan's ambassador to the United States from 2008 to 2011 at the height of America's surge in Afghanistan and overlapping with Ambassador Ann Patterson, views it as a missed opportunity for Pakistan. I think that Pakistan could have helped the United States stabilize Afghanistan and leave. Uh, Instead, Pakistan got bogged down with supporting the Taliban on the one side and helping the United States fight the Taliban on the other. That did not bring stability to Afghanistan. The Taliban have come back to power. The Taliban are not going to listen to Pakistan the way Pakistan would like them to. And the the Taliban will also encourage extremism inside Pakistan. So yes, Pakistan has definitely missed an opportunity of cooperating with the United States on mutually beneficial terms rather than trying to have the upper hand in Afghanistan while at the same time telling the United States that we are your allies. Some lawmakers in the United States look at the amount of military aid and, and civilian aid that Washington sent to Pakistan and they come to the conclusion that, look, this was really meant to help Pakistan battle its own extremists and, and, and terrorist groups. Um, but what happened instead was that Pakistan used, especially in the case of the military aid, used this assistance to bolster its defenses against India. And this really wasn't what it was supposed to be used for. Do you agree with that assessment? And if you do, do you think it was naive of Washington to think that anything different would happen? Pakistan and the United States have both engaged in what I call magnificent delusions in my book with that same very name. Uh, it is willful naivety. It's not that either side is really naive. It's just hoping that the other will be naive while trying to accomplish a narrower aim. So in case of uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan basically responded to the American threat after 9-11 that either you are with us or you are against us, but at the same time thought that it could use American military equipment and get military and economic assistance while continuing to support the Taliban. As far as building up against India is concerned, in my book, I have cited a cable going as far back as 1957 when an American uh, diplomat sent a cable back home saying, I don't know why we are arming Pakistan because Pakistan uh, all, all Pakistan's military seems to care about is India, whereas we think that we are arming somebody to fight the communists. And if you think about it, Pakistan never sent troops or equipment for America's various wars, etc., that were related to fighting communism, even though that was the ostensible purpose of the alliance. So both sides know well enough what the other really wants, but pretend that their goals can be uh, can be homogenized. Think about this. The U.S. gave Pakistan F-16 aircraft. What were the F-16 aircraft going to be used against? The TT in Pakistan or against even the Afghan Taliban crossing into Afghanistan? That was not going to happen. The F-16s were meant for Pakistan security against India. So a lot of this pretense is actually diplomatic doublespeak both sides engage in because the strategic shared interest is not always there. So... You have um, played a role in terms of how U.S. policymakers think about Pakistan. For example, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you used to give talks at the the Aspen Institute even 
before you were an ambassador, and and those talks were attended by congressmen and other policymakers. What 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 has been the main thrust of the advice you've given U.S. policymakers about Pakistan? Has there been a common thread? Well, the common thread has always been that the United States needs to not sustain Pakistan's own fantasies about its uh, role in the region, the Pakistan military's view that it is the only force that can keep Pakistan together, basically don't pay for bad ideas. That has been the common thrust in my advice to Americans. And speaking of not paying for at least so-called bad ideas, you basically advocated that aid should should be conditional in in a brief that you wrote with uh, Lisa Curtis in 2017, and uh, this was in your role at the Hudson Institute. And the title of the brief is a new a new U.S. approach to Pakistan enforcing aid conditions without cutting ties. And of course, the the report is quite long, and it would be difficult to summarize here, but. You essentially argue to avoid viewing and portraying Pakistan uh, as an ally, at least at this time, but maintain the option for Pakistan to become an ally of the United States in the future. You argue that aid uh, should be conditional. You argue that the U.S. should keep a unilateral option to to conduct uh, strikes against Taliban targets inside Pakistan, regardless of whether the the Pakistani government agrees or not. Um, And you should lay out a sequence and timeline for specific actions for Pakistan to take with regard to terrorists responsible for attacks outside Pakistan. And of course, this was written in 2017. And then uh, Lisa Curtis went on to serve as deputy assistant to the president uh, and National Security Council senior director for South and Central Asia from 2017 to 2021. To what degree do you think this report and your advice influenced uh, the Trump administration's South Asia policy? In the end, the Trump administration decided to withdraw from Afghanistan. So obviously, uh, the advice was not particularly influential. Initially, there was an attempt to try in 2018 to try and uh, make aid conditional and to uh, make demands of Pakistan, but that changed by the end of the year because that was how President Trump was. Um, but basically, all aid is always conditional. We must remember that there is no such thing as benign aid except humanitarian aid that is usually given in times of uh, crisis or uh, natural disasters. Uh, All aid is conditioned by some political conditionality. And if there has to be conditionality, why should it not have been a conditionality relating to Pakistan ending support for jihadi groups and for allowing democratic political freedoms Uh, in the country. The flow of aid from the United States to Pakistan has been a critical factor in determining the nature of the two countries' relationship. We covered economic ties between the two in greater detail in the first episode, so I suggest you go back and listen. But within the conversation about aid and conditionality, the war and terror period, a time of significant influx of U.S. civilian and military aid into Pakistan, was especially important. The Kerry Luger-Berman Act signed into law in 2009 provided Pakistan with non-military aid up to $1.5 billion annually over a period of five years. This sparked controversy in the upper echelons of the Pakistani government and military, as it was also conditioned on the Pakistani military ensuring that non-state actors such as Lashkar-e-Taiba and Jaish-e-Mohammed were not given support inside Pakistani territory. 
this was perceived in Pakistan as an attempt by the United States to strong arm the country through aid to increase its own security presence inside Pakistan. The Kerry Luger Berman Act was ambitious, but in many ways it increased tensions rather than reducing them. It was widely criticized by Americans and Pakistanis alike as inefficiently implemented. Its terms and conditionalities irked Pakistan's military. And ultimately, it opened the door for the U.S. Congress to threaten to withhold funds if those conditionalities weren't met. The relationship really went downhill in 2011, mainly due to the U.S. raid on Osama bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad. The impact of this incident was twofold. First, it resulted in strained ties between Pakistan and the United States at the government level. But it also waned popular support for Pakistan's military action against extremists inside the country. Many in Washington, D.C. viewed Osama bin Laden's presence in Pakistan as evidence of the country's complicity in providing shelter to the world's most wanted terrorist. Almost seven months later, the Salala attack by NATO troops, which the U.S. claimed was accidental, resulted in 26 reported casualties of the Pakistani armed forces near the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. U.S.-Pakistan relations reached an all-time low after the Salala incident following an already tumultuous year that saw not only the bin Laden raid, but the jailing of an alleged CIA contractor after he killed two men, and U.S. accusations that Pakistan backed a militant attack on the U.S. embassy in Kabul. To learn more about the goals of the Kerry Luger-Berman Act from the U.S. perspective and whether it achieved those aims, we will hear from Howard Berman himself. He served in the U.S. Congress for 30 years, including as the chair of the U.S. House Foreign Affairs Committee. He was known as a dealmaker. In the legislation that we introduced in the House, we had various pretty specific constraints on what the military aid could be used for. Uh, the Senate bill did not. I actually had a conversation once with Biden uh, about this. He, he was vice president then, and and he wanted um, he was upset that we were getting into that. He wanted this to just be a positive act and not trying to leverage the Pakistanis. But we were concerned with a lot of the military aid that had been provided prior to Zadari's election under Musharraf and uh, what it was being used for and the extent to which it was uh, as as much or more a an effort to enhance Pakistan's capabilities vis-a-vis -vis the Indians. We wanted to be more specific in, in constraining what Pakistan could use this money for. We viewed it as money to assist in a counterterrorism effort. Uh, they, had a, they seemed to have uh, broader purposes. This was also a time when the United States was conducting strikes inside Pakistan. If you watch the episodes of Homeland, uh, the TV show, there was, a, there was a scene once where the ambassador, our ambassador to Pakistan, a woman, is meeting with some folks and is all of a sudden called away from that meeting and comes back. And it was about a phone call regarding a, a U.S. military attack in Pakistan going after uh, the Taliban and, and, and remnants of al-Qaeda. I mentioned it. This was an event I'm, I'm on a uh, RAND board. That another board member is a, was a producer of that show. And when I saw him, I, I mentioned this story. <laughs> and uh, what you showed in your TV show, I saw exactly happen. <laughs> Where she left our, the room, we came back about 15 minutes later. 
The woman that Howard Berman is referring to is, of course, Ambassador Ann Patterson, who was in Pakistan witnessing the implementation of the Kerry Luger Berman Act. It was it was an enormously ambitious uh, effort, and I would still say compliment everyone who was behind it. It was a little a little too late to do much about the relationship, and and although it was very nice to have the resources, but what happened were Pakistanis were generally disappointed that the money didn't arrive quicker and that they didn't see results from from what were advertised to be huge amounts of money on the ground. That's the way the U.S. government works. As you know, it's hard. It takes a while to disperse money. And then we didn't have the staff on the ground to actually implement it very effectively because, of course, our USAID operation had been closed down because of the Pressler Amendment. And we had to pretty much start from scratch on that. I would say it got better over time, but I would say generally Pakistanis were disappointed with the results, which they expected to see more of and sooner. Despite what she admits is a checkered past in bilateral relations, especially in the late 2000s and early 2010s, Ambassador Patterson is still hopeful that the withdrawal from Afghanistan can mark an inflection point in U.S. diplomacy towards Pakistan so long as the State Department can be creative and Pakistan is also receptive. But this may require a less risk-averse approach to U.S. diplomacy. One Ambassador Patterson says used to exist but changed after the murder of U.S. officials in Benghazi, Libya. Well, I I would say that when I was there, predictably I would say this, but I, I think we made every effort to reach out to Islamic parties, reach out to... We traveled all around the country. We had uh, an astonishingly able consul general in Lahore, Brian Hunt, who was one of the most knowledgeable people about Pakistan on the planet. I I think what happened after that, and I've heard this complaint from Pakistanis myself, is that the security restrictions got tighter. And particularly they got tighter after after Osama bin Laden was killed. They got much tighter after the situation in Peshawar. They got much tighter after Benghazi. So people just didn't reach out as much because it was simply more difficult. And I think I think Benghazi, if I might say so on a broader issue, has had a really dramatic effect on, on the State Department and other agencies of government because the problem with not talking to people is that you don't know what's going on. And, and that has longer-term consequences. Plus, you look afraid. And that's not good for the U.S. either. So maybe I can ask a bigger question, because you served as ambassador to Egypt at a time of political upheaval uh, when the the revolution had uh, ousted Mubarak and um, the Muslim Brotherhood was in control. And there were there was uh, protests and chaos on a daily basis. Uh, And and obviously you you served in Pakistan during one of the most dangerous periods. Does U.S. diplomacy need to be less less risk averse today? Absolutely, absolutely. People need to get out there, and they need to get out uh, from these fortress embassies and talk to people who live in the country in their own language. And that's a that's another issue too. We've gotten so comfortable with the proliferation of English around the world that language ability has deteriorated as well. So, yes, of course, people need to get out from behind these walls. And embassies that are closed in Libya and Yemen and other places in the world need to be reopened. But the Benghazi thing, I think, was shocked to the system in the State Department. And the political fallout was perceived as extremely severe, costing Secretary Clinton perhaps the 
election. So, so there's enormous risk aversion in the department. So I remember when the debate was going on about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, folks would say things like, you know, we only lose about a dozen uh, U.S. troops per year. We, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, that's not much. We lose plenty in training as well. So we should keep going. And yet it does seem to be that there's this zero tolerance uh, for loss in the State Department. And so to really, you know, take what you said and, and uh, apply a cost benefit analysis, would it be worth the risk of would it be would the benefits of getting out of these fortress embassies, reopening embassies and in, in, in previously that were previously closed, getting diplomats out there talking to uh, the countries in which they serve? Uh, would that be worth the cost of potentially losing uh, diplomats here and there? Well, yes. And, and why should I, I mean, I might ask you, why should my, both my sons served in the military? Why should the military be perceived? I know it's a totally different function um, as we're willing to risk uh, young men and women in the armed forces and not willing to risk diplomats who have a who have an admittedly different function, but a critical one for our national security as well. If we don't know what's going on in countries like Egypt or Pakistan and Yemen, we're not in a position to make intelligent foreign policy decisions, and that puts everyone at greater risk. How effectively did Washington or does Washington navigate tensions between Pakistan's civilian government and the military establishment? Let me say that this is a sort of understudied element about Pakistan. Pakistan has now had a number of democratic transitions, first in its history, and uh, Secretary Condoleezza Rice and her British equivalent were very instrumental in negotiating a deal between President Musharraf and former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto to bring her back to Pakistan. Now, of course, she was very sadly assassinated, but it did set in process what I would call a fragile democratic transition that has actually persisted because of all the chaos and excitement in Pakistan's body politics. Sometimes we, we forget that, but it's actually, it's actually persisted. I would say the U.S. Embassy generally had excellent, we would talk about Afghanistan, but certainly we had access uh, and very rapid access to Pakistan's uh, uh, senior military. So we were in a position, as were the, as were the British, frankly, to try and assist in, in, in smoothing over problems. Broad engagement with Pakistan, however, has been limited by a long-standing trust deficit between the two countries. On Pakistan's side, this is rooted in resentment over the violence that accompanied the war and terror effort, U.S. criticism of Pakistan from the White House to Congress, and fears of U.S.-backed conspiracies. Well, I, I tried to push back on that narrative all the time when I was there, because a lot of it's simply nonsense. And, and let me give you an example. Uh, one day, Stan McChrystal was supposed to come visit and talk to the prime minister and the president, and water uh, rained and weather interfered with his visit, and he didn't come. And the next day, I wake up, and there's a front-page article, General McChrystal demands such and such of Pakistan's leaders. So I called the owner of the paper, and I said, you know, this is this total nonsense. General McChrystal didn't even come. And he simply laughed. So, so a lot of people know this is a joke, uh, and it has certain entertainment value. 
And it feeds the most bizarre conspiracy theories that you've ever seen. The United States is a world power with a world reach. So, of course, it has influence in Pakistan and many other countries in the world. But these conspiracy theories just get wildly out of whack. And they're fed, in some respects, by the press who, who looks on them as entertainment value. Still, Ambassador Patterson is hopeful that the two countries can overcome past tension and trust deficits. I hope now, with Afghanistan sort of behind us, uh, we'll see what comes out of that, uh, it, it's, a, it's an opportunity to focus on a more productive relationship with Pakistan and treat Pakistan as the, the very promising country it is on commercial relationships, on IT, on its English-speaking capacity. There's just enormous potential in Pakistan from a commercial and economic standpoint that we in the United States need to, need to promote and to nurture. As we move past the one-year anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, despite being critical of past U.S. involvement in the region, Lukman Qazi sees a hope for more normal diplomatic ties and a role for further U.S. engagement. We have uh, a friendly period uh, of our, in our relations, but uh, gradually these relations then turned to be very narrowly based. These were focused on security issues only. And uh, these, uh, the focal point of all these relations was the military establishment in Pakistan. So political leadership was largely ig- ignored in all these relations. I think the relations should be broadly defined, redefined. We want good relations with the United States. I'm saying this as a Pakistani and I'm saying this as a, a member and office bearer of Jamaat Islami that we want uh, friendly and cordial relations with the United States. For four decades, U.S.-Pakistan relations largely revolved around Afghanistan. There's no panacea for the relationship. Aid, trade, and military cooperation all have liabilities. But we may be at an inflection point if we are willing to learn from the lessons of the past. At least that's what the people we interviewed who were involved in some of the most consequential decisions of the last 20 years seem to think. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Adam Weinstein, and I hope you'll join me next episode as we continue to explore the contours and dimensions of the Pakistan-U.S. relationship. As always, I thank all the guests who appeared on this episode and hope you benefited from their insights and experiences. If you have feedback or thoughts on this episode, please do share them either on social media or at info at The audit is produced by Tabadlab Center for Regional and Global Connectivity. Episodes featuring Adam Weinstein are produced in collaboration with the Quincy Institute. This episode was edited and produced by Sarah Khan. Additional production and research assistance from Sameh Noor, Maryam Mirza, and Kashif Nadeem. Executive production by Shahab Siddiqui and Zishan Salahuddin. Music by Emmett Fenn. Season 1 of The Audit is made possible with a generous grant from the Holling Center for International Dialogue. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe for more.